Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Ideal Systems Podcast. On this episode, we'll be interviewing Mahad Akbar, a debater from Pakistan, and we'll be talking about how the circuit performs, what it does to do so well, what it has been like historically, and what the future for it looks like. A few of his notable breaks include breaking to the open quarterfinals at Docks Bridge, breaking to the Leiden Open, and breaking open and as a top ESL speaker at Austral's, which was also his first international competition. He also really enjoys playing chess, one piece, and doing accents. With that being said, let's get started. All right, so let's start off a little bit about your journey to debate. Where did you find debate, or more importantly, how did it find you? Uh, yes, so debate's been a long road for me personally. I've been doing this for quite a lot of time, but it's one that's been interspaced with a lot of gaps as well. So I started uh, debating in high school, I think is the most accurate um, way to state it, but I didn't really get to do too much of it, or at least not as much as I would like to. So in my first year of uh, A-levels, which is like the, the Pakistani equivalent of high school, um, was when I really got into debating. Like I'd seen, I'd had an interest in arguing with my friends about a bunch of random topics. Like I, I had this one uh, friend in particular, his name was Ibrahim. We don't really talk much anymore, but I would spend just hours just arguing with this guy on stuff that we barely cared about, um, like football or sports or anything, really. And uh, one day he just said to me, you should do like MUNs. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll see what this is about. So I signed up for an MUN and thankfully got canceled. Um, and then a month later, he was like, oh, if you're not going to do MUNs, you should try this parliamentary thing out. Um, so I just went to this competition as like an observer and I saw what the thing was about. And I saw the Pakistani team um, debate like a semi-final motion about um, some joke topic, like it was, this house believes that Angelina Jolie should adopting, should stop adopting children. Uh, and it was like a random, weird, uh, not particularly heavy debate. But I saw these people <clears throat> being very articulate and making it seem like the end of the world that this woman had adopted like a few children uh, from another part of the world. And I just was really fascinated. Um, so I stuck around and I asked my coach, uh, asked the coach of the school that I worked at, the school that I studied at, sorry. Um, to let me be a part of this. And he was like, sure. And then eventually he left. Uh, so we were without a coach for a while. But um, yeah, so at PAF chapter in Karachi is where I sort of started debating. And I got in approximately five tournaments before I did way too much and had to take a hiatus um, as enforced by my parents. And then I found it again in university. So uh, I think that's the most accurate uh, start of my journey. So it's been what, like eight years now? Um, Ooh, that's that's perhaps a bit long, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's approximately five to six years. Yeah, it, it should be six years. Okay. Turning turning six this next year. Okay. And so, how do you think debate has kind of impacted your life through the, like the last few years? I personally, I think that debate's been very very essential um, to the way that I perceive myself, both in positive and negative ways. Um, for a lot of things, I had kind of messed up opinions and kind of a messed up image of myself um, and certain characteristics of myself that uh, I won't go into it in too much detail, but aren't really appreciated within like the societies that, uh, that, that I come from. And I think a large part of debate for me initially was just kind of as a space to explore some of those identities um, related to gender or related to sexuality or anything uh, of that nature. Because it was a space that I was lucky enough to have people around me who were very supportive or at the very least very uh, you know how every teenager who does debate thinks they're very like 
critically thinking and super evolved. So um, as a result of that kind of like yeah. uh, uh, arrogance, perhaps, uh, we were all super into this idea of only the rational stuff matters. So a bunch of stuff that I didn't really like about myself, I was able to come to terms with um, through the process of debate. So I think that that was, for one part, really helpful. Um, in another, it's also a hobby that I have had struggles with that I think we'll get to um, later, perhaps, but like particularly with reference to mental health. Um, like it has a tendency to tie itself to your self-esteem and kind of making sure that that doesn't happen as mm -hmm. you debate a lot, because I do like the activity a lot, um, has been a difficult thing. But overall, I think it's been a very positive experience. Like it helped me realize as well that the field of studies that I wanted to go in wasn't um, related, for instance, STEM, but was probably closer to do with humanities because when I was debating those topics, I found them so much more interesting and so much more um, up my alley. So I think that that would be my view. Yeah, and on that note, so you're in university now, what are you studying? Yeah, so I'm studying uh, development and policy making, um, which is like a mix of a bunch of stuff. Like it's policy, it's um, a little bit of sociology, a lot of international relations, unfortunately, um, some economics and, you know, like a, a kind of mixed bag degree that largely focuses on development as a as a field. Mm -hmm. And I think that debate was really essential because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have ended up here if, if it wasn't for it. Yeah, like kind of like debate opens up this brand new world that no one really knew about prior to it. And I think a lot of people that do debate end up being really affluential. And so because of that, it's like you get someone to look up to and all these new ideas open up to you. So it's quite nice in that regard. All right. So kind of to that end, how were like, okay, so what were resources like initially when you started debating and what are they like now? So what has development been like since you started? Um. So for, for the, uh, I think for the debaters in Pakistan, uh, I think there's really two sides to the story. So there are two circuits largely, like based on one city that has some uh, a congregation of debaters where I live, and then another city that has a larger number of debaters and also cities around it that debate. So they also kind mm -hmm. of focus on like Lahore is, 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 the, is the other city that I'm referring to. Um, so particularly for the city that I was debating in, which is Karachi. Uh, there wasn't a lot of access to like national level tournaments or um, tournaments that would incorporate the larger circuit or even just focus on like getting kids from Karachi into national teams unless they came from like one or two very, very uh, affluent schools. So I think that the one thing that I've noticed and I would hope played some part in, is that over the past five or so years, um, as long as I've been doing this or as long as I've been judging in the circuit, um, there's been a lot more opportunities and a lot more um, resources um, being dedicated to debate by schools in, in the country as a result of those opportunities. So you have a lot more national level tournaments that um, kids from Karachi can participate in. You have more coaching programs being set up and schools following through with that coaching process. But at the same time, I feel like as a result of the fact that we have all this like money being poured into debating or time being poured into debating, it's it's kind of developing this um, separation almost where you only see like mm -hmm. three or four um, schools where the richest kids go to um, consistently doing well. And then everybody else is really struggling uh, to, because obviously their schools don't want to invest in debating um, unless they have some prestige incentive to do so. And that only really applies to the schools that want to send their kids abroad or that this just creates a weird cycle where on one hand you're kind of happy that more kids like you are getting opportunities. But at mm. the same time, I wonder like if I'd, um, if a kid like me, because the, the school that I uh, went to, even though they have like coaching programs now, they're not doing quite as well 
as they perhaps should be. And uh, you just notice this disparity building with additional resources being poured in. So it's a little bit upsetting, but at the same time, at least there's more access on some level. And I'm hoping that it continues to like improve for everybody in the circuit. Yeah, that the resources kind of start to like trickle down and we start to close those barriers. But I also do think like debate is a massively elitist sport, like for two main reasons. Firstly, you have to be a part of some kind of institution to be a part of it. And secondly, tournament fees are so high and that's because university <laughs> debaters need to make a living off of tournament fees. Yeah, it's, uh, it is like deeply unfortunate. Um, I think the, like with Pakistan specifically as well, like it is just a nightmare to participate anywhere other than Pakistan. Like uh, for instance, so again, some context I feel like ties into this because I uh, I normally like to separate the circuit from my own personal views on this, but it's sort of impossible to. Because okay. um, what you get is that, uh, that firstly the economy is just like in a bad state. So like the currency is worth less. So everything like even just on perception costs more, like flying out costs more, getting it wrong, getting to the costs more. But um, like international debating or even debating at a level where you have like, for instance, teams from other cities participating is, is just like prohibitively expensive, always has been. So the university circuit in the city that I live in has two or three institutions that like have debaters at them. But even then, we didn't really do much in terms of actual debating up until like COVID hit. And it's, it's sort of unfortunate when you like, Oh, a substantial part of your debating success to this like horrible virus that's that's ruined so many lives um, and like given you um, issues. But uh, yeah, I think that the advent of COVID has really made it significantly more accessible. Um, I think on a schools level and also on a universities level. But in the past, like yeah, um, even people from relatively affluent backgrounds can't reasonably afford um, going to like even major tournaments in the country, because it's it's still like a prohibitively expensive hobby. Like even as somebody who works and studies, um, it takes about half a month's salary uh, to like attend a tournament in Lahore, or it takes like two weeks in universities because they, there's not a lot of like university debating as a culture in Pakistan, um, like except for maybe LUMS, which, is, which has like produced a consistent amount of university debaters. It's very hard to like get leaves as well because university is just like, it, it, this doesn't matter, just do it on the weekends or whatever. Uh, they're very happy to publicize you, but they, but they don't give you like leads or funding. Um, so yeah, I think it's, 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 it's a difficult balance to strike. COVID has been a massive part of like resource building, but even prior to COVID, what, where was like the circuit in terms of resources versus where is it now? And what does that look like in terms of like coaches and certain in terms of like institutional knowledge or just kind of like the, the things that you have access to? That's fair. Um, so I think that, again, for this, I want to kind of focus on the school circuit because I think that that's the pipeline through which mm -hmm. you get a lot of these, um, like some of the most successful uh, university yeah, schools debaters. So again, there was kind of a greater division of resources. Um, a lot of it was centralized in like Punjab and where, where Lahore and Islamabad are. And over there, you have this culture of like schools spending a lot of money on WSDC preparation um, because the Pakistan national team like usually does quite well at WSDC. Um, and I think that that's down mm -hmm. to really two things. Firstly, I, I, I just personally believe that the talent pool in Pakistan is phenomenal. Um, just, just kind of always has been, uh, which is perhaps a reductive answer. But uh, in terms of the kids that I've come to interact with um, as somebody who coaches here and somebody who's judged a lot here, it, it's just like brimming with potential with kids who don't have access to like the resources that they need. In terms of the resource allocation overall, I think that there are a lot of coaches, um, particularly in like Lahore and Islamabad, uh, where you have this like greater culture of uh, 
what do you call it, um, schools debate. And a lot of money being poured into debating there as well has been a very consistent feature. Um, I think the problem with that has always been that it goes to the schools that have these like prestige um, images around them. And a lot of that comes from like sending their kids abroad. And a lot of it comes from, what do you call it? Just having these immediate national trophies that they can parade. Um, what I think that's led to is you've had quite a few debaters who've studied here, who've um, become good debaters here. And then at the same time, we've been able to go abroad and take it with them. Um, I think Tamkino Ab, uh, one of my uh, closer friends in the circuit, is a really good example of this. Like, even though she's not from Lahore, she's one of from, from one of the institutions that ha that's had like a consistent debating program, and went on to like Cambridge and is doing quite well there uh, as well, of course. So I, I think that most Pakistani kids have had this uh, very distinct, separated school circuit that's built on, in in some cases, like very. Uh, the word I'm the word perhaps is case sorry my ESL is showing but these kind of archaic ideas no, no about worries. like what what debate exactly mm -hmm. is and what debate exactly could be um so I think that there's kind of mm -hmm. a power structure that locks in certain coaches uh, because obviously schools want to hire people with experience and that kind of technically just becomes the same people and their students getting back into the schools um but overall I think that the coaching circuit has produced some fantastic speakers. Um, I think that the prioritization that the circuit has had for a very long time has been this kind of cutthroat, like just make sure you win it at all costs. And that's led to like equity concerns and uh, issues of like ethics, I think in the past. But overall, um, there's like a significant amount of resources being poured into specifically uh, schools debating in Lahore and Islamabad. A lot of those speakers then leave. Um, a lot of them end up going to Lums, which is where you get like a bulk of Lums is, uh, majority debaters would then go on to be successful as well. So that I think is about fair. And then COVID um, obviously changes things because you still have the coaches, but now everyone's competing on a similar level um, instead of us having to like take our kids over there with financial pressure. And as a result, like the results at this year's national championship were a lot more equitable to teams from Karachi, for instance, um, where even teams that don't have like massive amounts of money being put into debating um, or underpaid coaches have had their kids do reasonably well. At, at competitions in the aftermath of COVID. So I think that that kind of um, disparity that was being built into the circuit um, has been both highlighted and to a certain extent overcome by COVID, but um, there's still a long way to go if we're, if we're gonna genuinely improve circumstances. So with being ESL, how do you think that impacts debaters? Um, so I, I think it's probably like a spectrum in terms of how ESL you are. Um, for a lot of us, we don't really think in English mm -hmm. or a lot of us, we don't really think in um, like the language that we're supposed to be thinking in for some of us, it's kind of a mixed bag of, um, I, I think that it who has like a comparatively weaker grasp of English than I do, because I understand that even though I am ESL, I've got a decent grasp on the language. Um, but so that's the only really perspective, real perspective that I can speak from. Um, but even then, I think you find yourself very frequently kind of struggling to find words as I have sort of demonstrated on this podcast as well. Um, but I think on a second level, it's just this like process of self-doubt and kind of the achievements that you get in ESL, like feeling less than, even though you know they shouldn't feel less than, whenever anybody else gets them, you appreciate the fact that they have, and you don't think of them as less than you. Whenever you personally get an ESL achievement, it kind of feels like you're there for like an affirmative action thing. So I think that it like kind of impacts your self-esteem when you get ESL achievements. Um, it's also just very jarring almost to be in a room with EPL speakers. Like it, it's very satisfying when you win. 
Um, but a lot of times if you're like struggling to come up with a word and you see these people who've like gone to Eton and then Oxford and are now just here and they're competent and they're fine with the language and they're judging you for it. And I think that that kind of like subtle discriminatory element uh, plays, a, plays a big role, I think, for me, because it kind of throws you off your game as well. And even if you think you're like really good at English, um, sometimes somebody who shows up who's had that kind of background kind of throws you off a little bit. So I, I think it's like a process of coming to terms with the fact that your successes matter and no matter how small they seem and coming to terms with the fact that even if you don't necessarily have the best mm. grasp of the language, it doesn't mean that you can't be a fantastic debater. It doesn't mean that you can't work to overcome that, um, both in terms of your grasp of language and just having simpler words that still win the debate at the end. So I, I think that that's been my experience with BDSM. Okay, so earlier speaking, you mentioned like the cutthroat culture. What is this cutthroat culture and what does it look like, whether that's in the WSDC circuit or in universities? Sure. So I, I think that in universities, we have it like limited to a certain extent. Obviously, we do so struggle with it. Mm -hmm. But with the, the school circuit in particular, I think that there's been kind of like a boy club mentality surrounding WSDC, particularly in the ways that like national teams are built. Um, so I, I don't want to speak like issues um, regarding specific individuals. because I don't think that um, like without their consent, mm -hmm. I, should be, I should be doing that. But in the past, we've kind of yeah. struggled to both have adequate representation in terms of like demographic representation, but also like generally having a significant majority of men speaking in national teams. You have a significantly, from, from my experience in talking to uh, particularly AFAPs in the circuit, um, the ways that most coaches speak, the most coaches teach rather, is reflective of the ways that they work. And I mentioned how it's a kind of cyclical process by which these like, coaches bring in their students and so on and so forth. I think that's kind of led to a, I don't want to be, uh, uh, it's okay, I'll, I'll get a little political. Um, it, it kind of creates this really toxic atmosphere where you're just um, constantly being told to correlate your self-worth to the immediate successes that you have and your speaker positions are utilized to uh, judge you as a human being. And the, the treatment that you get in camp um, the privileges that you get in camp, what you can and can't get away with is often contingent on how many trophies you win schools or how many trophies you um, get to get uh, to let your coach have like a pay raise or something. Um, I think that, uh, again, this is still to some extent greater in Punjab because there's a larger amount of money there uh, being invested into the school. So like coaches have a greater incentive to just prioritize um, having a, yeah, having, having the most successful team possible. But uh, I think that Overall, it's led to some very uncomfortable situations and a lot of women leaving the circuit earlier than they should. And obviously that's a process that I am perhaps not, not the most uh, qualified to speak to, but uh, it's, it's something that we want to work on and we want to fix and we try to avoid in, in, in the ways that I coach, for instance. But uh, I think it's a process of just unlearning the ways that we were often taught to pay. You currently coach. So I, I know you coach at Lyceum. So how did you find your way to that? And how has that experience been? Sure. So um, Lyceum was, before I get into how the experience has been, I think I should answer the first part of your question. Um, yeah. So immediately after the whole A-levels thing and not being able to debate for like the, uh, the second year of my high school, I was kind of upset about it all. So I just uh, couldn't really debate much. My parents wouldn't let me go to competitions. So what I would do is I would sneak off uh, to like a bunch of random competitions because uh, I, I still had friends yeah. in the circuit and I would just go judge because they would offer free food to judges. <clears throat> so I just went as this like independent judge 
um, for like chasing plates in biryani at ramen competitions. And uh, eventually I kept doing that and I got into university and my parents kind of eased mm-hmm. up so I could do that without hiding so much. Um, and I think just continuously judging more and more um, allowed me to build up like a judging resume. <clears throat> and obviously it was a local judging resume, nothing impressive. Um, like not somebody that I would let IA at any competitions. But uh, thankfully I was in a place that had low competition for like uh, coaching markets and I was able to mm-hmm. hold an articulate conversation. So an opportunity opened up, which is like a, like a tumultuous history with uh, debating and debate coaches where it's been like some sort of inconsistent, mm-hmm. some really high highs and some really low lows. And uh, I was kind of warned against uh, coaching here, but um, I was I was excited. For Wait, the, why were you warned against it? I don't want to like slander my employers, um, but uh, so okay. so like past coaches that sort of struggled to kind of um, adapt to the environment. Even though I don't think it's particularly difficult, but obviously when you're somebody who's strictly a debater, um, working in like school yeah. environments that are focused on more of an all-round education kind of makes that difficult for a lot of people to adapt. So I think that that's primarily why it was difficult for a lot of people to integrate. Um, but I started coaching at Lyceum. I, I applied for the job. I had very little competition, so I got it at the time at a fairly underpaid wage. Um, but then uh, during my first year of coaching, I think, is when I really found that like love that I'd had for debating that was kind of missing for a while. I'd just been judging for like food and for the ability to like give kids feedback because I found that rewarding. Mm-hmm. And then when I was coaching at Lyceum, I had these like three wonderful kids in my first year. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to gush about some of my students here, but uh, I had these three like wonderful kids, and these are my only like uh, these were my only A2s that year, so like the final year students okay. who had done any debating whatsoever, who hadn't immediately left. Um, so there were three kids: Gaurav, Myra, and Tamur, who was the current head of the society. So I, I find the story very funny, so I I just feel the need to tell it. But at like the first tournament that we did, um, I gave them like two sessions, and. It was a tournament organized at Lyceum and they and they broke at the competition like fairly high. And I was like, okay, there are some weaknesses, but we can workshop these and we can like get these sorted. So mm-hmm. I go up with the three kids after after the tournament and I said to them, like, all right, I think we have um, done fairly well, but we can learn from this and move forward. Um, and at that point, they told me that two of them were quitting and the only one who was staying was like the guy who had to be there because he was debate head. Um, and I panicked <laughs> immediately. But uh, yeah, after like, kind of begging the two other kids to stay um, over the course of the year. I think I developed like a, a great appreciation for the way that kids just learn at such different and interesting paces. Um, like you can give a kid all the answers in the world and they will just straight up ignore you unless they're at a point where they feel comfortable accepting those answers or find those answers on their own. And some kids are just like sponges who take up everything you tell them. And I think it's just been a very rewarding experience overall. Because um, when you take kids who are like about to quit debating um, three weeks um, and three weeks later you have them like winning a tournament that um, no team from Karachi had ever won, um, it's it's just very rewarding to see that, I think. And being able to be there for like their growth both as in, um, individuals and also as just debaters who I've, I've seen go from like fairly inconsistent kind of like manic um unpredictable, will run anything you, you could possibly think of, uh, to a more consistent, uh, better individual speakers throughout the year, I think was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And thankfully, I got to continue that this year. And again, sort of had a journey of taking these kids that haven't had too much experience with debating, except for like one of them, 
and then putting them through this like process of just fire uh, until they got uh, ready in time to participate. And yeah, I hopefully get the chance to continue this um, because I, I genuinely really enjoy coaching. Uh, I think it's been one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. And if I've found value in any work that I've ever done, I think it's been coaching. So like, what's next? Like, are you planning to open up your own academy or kind of branch out with it? Yeah, so uh, a lot of coaches like um, have this thing where they move into like private stuff. Um, obviously, for the moment, I have like my uh, final year of university left. So up until then, at least, I'm mm-hmm. definitely just coaching at, at Lyceum because it's a fairly comfortable, manageable uh, time situation. And also, I just absolutely love the kids. Uh, and every year, I tell myself I'm not going to get attached to the next batch of kids. Uh, so I can leave in the event that I need to, but I always end up getting attached to the next batch of kids. Um, so probably, at least for some time, I'm, I'm just going to stick with Lyceum because I keep getting attached to the new batch of kids. But um, in terms of academies moving forward, um, I, I find some interest in the idea, but I think that if I ever was to do like a debate academy, it would have to be something that focuses more on getting kids who are from schools that aren't Lyceum or Cedar or Hicks or KGS or any of these like big richer schools um, and having them compete on the same level. Because um, I think that that's insanely more rewarding than like charging exorbitant amounts uh, from some rich person's kid to be better than mm-hmm. some other rich person's kid by some slim margin. Um, like uh, I understand that coaching is supposed to be like a job and a lot of people tell me to just take it as a job. Um, but but I, I don't think I can reasonably do well at coaching unless I like the kids and also unless I think that what I'm doing has some value. Um, so if I, if I was to do the whole academy thing, I think it would have to be uh, focused around uh, kids, kids who are outside of this like mm-hmm. elite bubble. Because I, I generally don't yeah. like kids who are in the elite bubble. Obviously, you grow attached to them uh, over time. But yeah, because like, I, I don't come from like a particularly wealthy family. So uh, I always couldn't really relate to the rich kids beyond uh, beyond a certain level. So yeah, I, I would like to do that at some point uh, to just like have a kind of equalizing platform so they can just like tell the rich kids to that tell the rich kids that they are just as good as they are. Yeah, I completely I can see that. Also, I feel as if there's this passion that debate coaches bring in, and you put in like a personal stake into your children's victories and losses, but also into how they're feeling and you know like their their growth. So it completely like changes um, like the connection you have with them. Okay, so like the real question is like, do you guys put something in the water? Like how are you guys producing a champion <laughs> after another? Like, w- like what are you doing right? Um, I think that that's probably a, <clears throat> a combination of like what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong as well. Because um, yeah. uh, obviously there's plenty of talented kids. There's plenty of great coaches that teach them fantastic fundamentals. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the kids go on to like learn better things in university and have better experiences and then adapt from that. But I think a lot of it comes from the drive that um, a lot of these students have. And I would hope that for the majority of them, that comes from a healthy place. Um, I know a lot lot of times it often doesn't come from a healthy place for me personally. um, uh, Because again, you you sort of see this like success relationship as being very um, tied to your self-esteem. So mm-hmm. I would hope that for the majority of Pakistani debaters, this is a completely unrelatable podcast. Um, but uh, I, I fear sometimes that, that we've created this like atmosphere of just wanting to win at all costs. And we kind of do whatever we can to like push ourselves through and just get there uh, through whatever means necessary. Um, so I think it's probably a combination of the, of the longest storied circuit of being a good WSDC team with a good WSDC circuit 
um, and also the drive to just want to get better. Like I know personally, a lot of times, uh, me and uh, my uh, my most consistent debate partner Hamza Hamza Faruqi, uh, we just kind of debate on spite because we feel like we're from a circuit where people don't really take us too seriously. So we literally just started debating uh, internationally this year. Uh, we didn't really get a chance to. We teamed up for the first time purely out of spite to say to like tell people because we had all these people around us that have broken in international tournaments and they would be like, oh, we are so far ahead of you um, because uh, you've never been to an international tournament, so you never understand. You'll never understand how what debating is truly supposed to be. And we went to the first tournament and we just wanted to break because we just wanted to prove out of spite that we could do it. And uh, I think that spite is a big motivator for me personally. But uh, yeah, I think that it's, it's usually just a combination of having really, really driven kids who've had decent coaching and again, just have a phenomenal talent pool. Like if you could um, empower the kids who are like not in the richer schools in Pakistan, I'm sure that the circuit would have done even better. Like we just see so many kids who have so much potential, but don't really get the chance to speak. Um, so I would hope that moving forward, we get more and more of these champions, um, but emerging from places that have less of a background and privilege is my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Because because for a large part of it, currently a lot of debaters can just say oh, pr- under represented minorities or the developing world or marginalized communities, but no one actually knows what that looks like or what that feels like or what that experience is, except for these kids, they do have that experience. And I feel as if it puts in a certain drive into you to just become better because you know what it feels like to not be in a position where you have like power or privilege. Yeah, I um, absolutely couldn't, couldn't possibly agree. Like it's, it's, it's kind of a spite thing as well to a certain extent. Like obviously with us, it was a very intrinsic thing. But now whenever I see myself going up against like, um, let's just say esteemed institutions in like a competition, I, I get this kind of extra motivation just to like sort of, because you always grow up, um, like especially if you don't end up going to all the places that you dream of going to, then you kind of grow up with this almost chip on your shoulder that I think a lot of Pakistanis mm-hmm. have as well, where you just want to prove everybody wrong and kind of establish an image for yourself. Um, so I, I think a lot of us have that chip on our shoulder and I think it's another thing that drives DSL speakers to do so well as well, because you see a lot of these like yeah. um, genuine legends of debating emerging from ESL backgrounds. I think uh, 10 uh, or um, what do you call it? are plenty of these like fantastic world beaters. And of course, Hamza and everybody who's, who's uh, come since from Pakistan as well. So I think that that kind of chip on your shoulder attitude that a lot of ESL speakers have has seen them push through these barriers and just, yeah, establish that this isn't like a white man's game anymore. So I think that yeah, that's Yeah, I think every single really notable speaker that I can think of is ESL. Yeah. Like right off the top yeah. of my head. Just because, <laughs> and I, I guess it's probably because like it's not really a native language. So you almost have to be more artistic when you speak English, yeah. right? And so like the English you learn is so much more better for debate. Whereas like the, and then also I think the problem is um, you kind of just take advantage of the things that you have and you don't really care so much for them. Whereas the things you don't have, you tend to just work harder for them. You kind of just take it for granted if like, if like your ABL. I, I also think it like, it's, you you generally work harder to have better English, but I also think that for speakers who have like a very loose grasp on, grasp on English as well, it kind of helps to not be like too bogged mm-hmm. down by it. Almost because I know I have the sentences mm-hmm. sometimes like look for fancier words, just, sub- just subconsciously looking for fancier words. And sometimes that helps out a lot. Yeah. But, but I've also noticed that a lot of ASL speakers just like go to this like simple route of just saying, we're not going to try to do this. We're going to do this uh, as cleanly as possible. And 
for a sport that like rewards just like clean, um, simple argumentation, mm-hmm. it, it usually helps a lot to have like the clarity to just say, this is the extent to which I know this language. I'm just going to use this to the best of my ability, not try to be too fancy with it and like make up for it with my arguments almost. So I, I think it's kind of like a multifaceted thing based on how just how ESL you are. Like any other competitive sport, because debate is like, what, like, do you teach that mindset or is that mindset just naturally learned? How do you get there? Going, being able to like take those losses and those hits continuously and still kind of emerging out of it. Yeah, I, I think that that like, that is a process that's very individual, I, I feel. Um, because I've, I've been part of that process as, as a speaker mm-hmm. and as a coach and kind of have seen both sides of the, sides of the spectrum. And I think that you can attempt to make that, uh, like teach your kids to just take the losses um, in your stride and try to grow from them and learn from them and just move forward without like letting them get you down um, and be humble after you get the wins but celebrate them. That kind of like ideal mindset that you have. I think that you kind of have to teach your kids that and have to like teach yourself that as well to some extent, like openly practice it. Um, Tell yourself like in the mirror, if you necessarily have to, that it's okay to have a loss or two. It's okay to not be able to, it's okay to not get the win this time, so long as you learn from it and get the win next time. But but I also think that it's very individual in the ways that people deal with that lesson. Um, I'm not gonna name names here, but I think that uh, one of the instances where I was like taught this most clearly is that I, I swore to myself when I was coaching that I was never going to do this thing of like making my kids believe that they weren't valuable if they were going to lose a debate. Um, so I was really like hugely um, inclined to this. I, I centered my entire camp around this philosophy that like it's okay to lose. I, the only thing that matters to me mm-hmm. is that you do your best. Uh, that's all I care. And I think that the moment that I realized that that wouldn't be enough was when the first year of my coaching at like a major tournament, uh, some of my kids did really poorly. And it was like a variety of factors that caused them to do poorly. And I didn't blame them in the slightest. Um, and I was trying to just be comforting. And I wouldn't, I would like keep a happy face around them, uh, even though I was devastated on the inside. But uh, one of my kids just broke down at the tournament um, in front of me. Like, they just cried directly in front of me. And I was so unprepared uh, for that possibility because in my mind, I just taught them to not be like me, uh, to not like associate losses with some inherent flaw in who you are. Just learn from them and move forward. And I think that that's where I kind of figured out that it has to be a more constant process than that and the kid has to want to participate in it. Um, so I, I think that for me personally, finding that um, competitive spirit has come with a lot of breaks being associated with debating and having to take time to myself to get back in that headspace where I can reasonably do it. But yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think it's a process that everybody has to go through. You have to tell yourself that actively and then just kind of learn to prioritize at some points, your own personal well-being over how well you do in debates. Um, and just, yeah, just realize that everybody's different and it affects people in different ways. Right. So considering just how competitive the circuit is, you clearly garner a lot of attention. Why do you think, like, a lot of Pakistanis in particular are so keen to get into debating in the first place? Like, what's, like, the golden egg that they're after? Um, I think that... Um, it, it's again like it probably happens on like several different levels. But I, I think that the two driving motivations that I can think of is firstly it's um, just a very easy thing. It's a, it's a it's a comparatively easy way of like building up a resume to want to go abroad for studies, which is why you get a lot of people in the, into the schools pipeline, particularly at some of the more prestigious schools, because uh, kids want to go to like top universities, have been successful in debate, uh, often puts them in a position to be that. 
I think that that's certainly a driving factor because kids are like very academically competitive here. I think a second um, reason for why a lot of kids who don't go to those schools or some of the kids who do go to the schools get into debating is similar to the reasons that I got into debating because you are kind of surrounded um, to some extent by some weird opinions um, that you don't exactly know how to deal with. Like you have all this like stuff that you know is clearly wrong being said by like people around you, your family members, your friends, but you can't really articulate that. And I think a lot of people head into debates as a means of like getting the tools to articulate it, or in some cases just rant uh, about stuff that you normally can't rant about. Like it's a, it's a place where you have genuine free speech. Mm. Um, and some of the consequences that come with having that like ability to be genuinely free in what you want to say. But at the very least, you are able to articulate ideas that you would not be able to articulate in most other spaces, particularly for teenagers. So I, I think that like um, in the yeah. growing presence of social media, you, you kind of have a slight drop in those kinds of kids heading to debate because debate has also been like problematized. And now it's, it's like the whole thing where it has its like own structural issues. And a lot of kids who had this like tendency to go there because they wanted just like a space to be themselves um, kind of see in the aftermath of like post-debating that that's perhaps not the best place to be. But I think for a lot of kids, it's still an opportunity to just be themselves and say the things that they've always wanted to, but either never had the tools to say them or never had the opportunities to. So I, I think it's probably a combination of those two things. I feel as if debate like gives you language to express your emotions or to articulate your thoughts. I completely agree with that. It, it's like that really, really resonated with me because I know at our club, we get a large number of queer members. Honestly, we do across Canada. And I'm pretty sure a big reason for that is just because it, it's a very open and diverse space and everyone is so accepting, right? Um, like I've never been anywhere else where you say your pronouns prior to beginning anything or you say them when you're actually introduced. Um, so what are the first things that like you tell your incoming students and what is like the initial philosophy that you try to ingrind in them? Like, I know we got the one where you don't tie your self-worth to how well you do at competitions, but what else is like a key piece of advice that you instill into them? Yeah, so I think that one of the key pieces that I try to, try to tell all of my students who come in is to just like immediately treat your team members with respect and understand as well that your losses are not the fault of any one particular individual. Like even if one speech is just completely meaningless, doesn't really add anything to the debate and you think that that speech has lost you the debate, in actuality, it's the preparation that you've had that's led to that speech happening in the first place that lost you the debate. So, so I think that one of the core rules at my camp is always, if you blame somebody else for the losses that a team is taking, or if you are hostile towards anybody in camp or make them feel uncomfortable, then even if you are like the star pupil, it's going to win me all of my trophies and get me the races. I'm going to kick you out of camp. Um, and, I, and I've done, I've had to do that once or twice where I've um, had kids who genuinely made their teammates uncomfortable and I've had to move them from camp. And it's obviously never a nice thing to do because you hope for every kid to do good and, you know, become a better person. And you try to make them a better person as well is a, is a huge part of my camp because I, I try to make sure that my camp is more than just... Um, here are some skills that you can use to like beat other 17 year olds. Um, these are the tricks. These are the, uh, kind of, um, this is my uh, secret. Just take it and run with it. Uh, I, I always try to make it so that my kids have a better relationship with themselves and with debating even out of high school. And I think that one of the biggest things is to have like a team dynamic that is not toxic to anybody involved and where how well somebody is doing in camp cannot be an indicator of how, how, how valuable they are as a member of the team. And, and just like being more appreciative in the ways that we deal with students who aren't perhaps fantastic speakers, but often contribute a lot to preparation, or contribute a lot to just 
building arguments as, as a process in Canva. So I think that uh, the core philosophies of my Canva are very centered on winning doesn't specifically matter. Um, losing doesn't specifically matter, just prioritize your well-being. And my, my second thing is like, do it for the team is, is a huge part of it. Like you cannot uh, let the people around you down, not in the sense of don't lose a debate, but be there when they when they request you to be there. Don't abandon them at a tournament. Um, and most of all, don't turn on them in the event that things go poorly for you. You win as a team and you lose as a team. So, okay, we're coming to the end of our time. So if you had the capacity to change one thing in the international circuit, which you've clearly gone quite exposed to now, what would that be? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think if I was to change one thing in international debating, it would just be like our habits of oversaturating our weekends with, with, with competitions. And of course, I understand that for some people, this is like important and they find meaning in the fact that they speak every weekend. But I think mm-hmm. by having so much, so much competition and so frequent and just having it be all the time, everywhere, uh, what you end up with is you kind of end up with this like rat race almost where people want IA subsidies and they want coaching opportunities. So they want to have resumes that reflect that they are among the very best in debating. But there are some speakers or some judges who are inclined towards that style of like a competition every weekend, maybe two or three if it's a fun weekend. Um, but I think what it does is it creates this unnecessary pressure on a lot of speakers who can't deal with that. Uh, like I'm a, I'm a speaker who personally can't do that. Like I, I can't do like four competitions a week, uh, a month, and then be okay with it. Like I have to take huge breaks in the aftermath of, of my uh, like stretches of competition. And I think if I was to change one thing, it would be to take away some of that pressure to constantly perform and to constantly be on top of every other tournament and constantly be adding layers to the CV so that you can compete with other people who are just mentally more able to do competitions on a sustained level uh, than you are. So yeah, if I, if I, could, mm-hmm. if I could teach um, a lot of people who are somewhat like me one thing, it's the importance of like taking a break when you need to and just focus on quality rather than quantity it doesn't matter if you've spoken at um, xyz open by university that's going to have xyz iv next weekend it doesn't matter just take your time pick your competitions and do your best when you get that yeah because now it's almost creating this like bubble where it's just like all right well if you don't have like 200 tournaments from a singular year where were you all year did you even debate (laughs) yeah it's a huge thing it's it's such a pressure as well because like i don't judge much anymore yeah I'm, I'm i'm honestly like i'll okay. be just frank with you i'm tired of judging like i only do it if like my friends specifically ask me to because i've judged for a very long time yeah. i'm kind of enjoying debating but like whenever i'm applying for an ia ship or something uh, in case i actually want to judge somewhere i always look at my cv and i'm like oh this is supremely inadequate i haven't judged all year where have i been i think that, that just it's just an unnecessary pressure it doesn't do anything for everyone yeah and also i don't know how much better each like how much better it makes you to have three competitions in a weekend because i feel as if it's like marginal marginal improvement but it adds so much to your cv but then at the same time if you're not doing that you don't get those layers to your cv and then you're no longer competitive and it's just like you fall down the ranks yeah it's a it's a whole thing and i absolutely despise it so i just i kind of have this permit habit of like just go away for like a few months pop up out of nowhere at a tournament, like maybe recruit some people, mm-hmm. um, do well, and then leave again for like three months, uh, which I think has worked out for me. But uh, 
I understand that I've had to sacrifice some of that rat race potential, but I kind of just moved past that a little. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to the audience for listening in on the episode. And again, thank you to our guests for being here today. Lastly, keep doing what debaters do best, debate. See you in the next one.